Each year, Americans spend $400 billion on residential renovations and repairs. In this age of this old house, fixer-upper, love it or list it, maybe you have your favorite, home, the home renovation industry is booming. From do-it-yourselfers, weekend warriors, to contractors, or those doing side hustles to make some extra money on the side, or full-scale luxury remodeling, whatever it is, no matter your budget, no matter the scale or scope of your project, Realtor.com lists five things that you can expect when you renovate a home. Number one, your day-to-day life will be uprooted. Whether it's adding on an addition to your house or updating the kitchen or remodeling a bathroom, your normal routines are going to be disrupted, right? You've got to make room for that construction project. You might be displaced out of your house or, out, or from using that room, or you may have limited access to your normal conveniences, and you can bet the work is going to take longer than they tell you. Number two, it gets really messy. See, in order to make room for the new, the old has to come down. And that demolition process um, uh, will spew uh, uh, sheetrock dust and and debris and sawdust everywhere. And you can expect that it'll get uh, worse before it gets better. Number three, you'll get stressed out. All along the way, um, you're, you're adding change into your life. You're inviting it in, and change by its very nature is stressful. And while the excitement of a renovation project and even the, the goal of a better space is compelling, the reality is that the process of renovation is just inherently stressful. And as you go through that process, you'll feel the weight of that stress. Number four, renovations cost more than you think. Whatever your initial budget is, it's going to go beyond that. Until the work actually gets started, everything really is an estimate. It's an educated guess. And even careful planning can't account for unseen, unforeseen realities along the way. Simply put, once you, you don't know what's behind a wall, inside a wall until you bust it open and see what's inside. And every trip to Home Depot starts to add up. And number five, you'll learn a lot about yourself. When life's hardest, and see, we learn life's hardest and greatest uh, uh, lessons while we're under pressure. And that renovation process removes conveniences, it adds mess, and makes change your new normal. And then you add to that the reality of multiple decisions that you have to make along the way. What color do you want the wall? What kind of new floors do you want? Whatever it may be. Uh, You start to experience uh, decision fatigue. You get this stretch timeline, an escalating budget. And all of that is a recipe for pressure. And when that happens, the, the stuff you're really made of comes out. And you begin to learn a whole lot about yourself. Well, now this morning, in John chapter 2, verses 13 to 25, we're going to see Jesus renovate his father's house, the temple. Over time, we see that convenience has replaced reverence and corruption has replaced conviction in the temple. And over time, worship there grew cold, routine, and disengaged. See, the temple, which was supposed to be this place of reflection and devotion, it became a place of commerce and noise. Today, we come to one of those more shocking moments in the ministry of Jesus, the clearing of the temple. See, John tells us that, that, they, that Jesus did many things, a lot of which weren't even written down. And it's shocking to us that of all the things that could have been edited out, that could have been left out, when they're thinking about, okay, what picture do we want to portray of Jesus, that this one got left in. 
And it's because John wants to tell us something about Jesus. And as we work through this passage, we're going to see three things as we move. The first thing we'll see is we're going to see restoration from corruption. We're going to see Jesus express righteous anger to the point where he drives out the merchants from his father's house with a whip. Second, we're going to see a request for credentials. The Jewish leadership, after this happens, wants to know on what authority Jesus presumes to be able to come into the temple and bring renovation and reform. And finally, we're going to see the kind of response to Christ. There's several different responses uh, from this bold display, and uh, we're going to see uh, the the true and faithful disciples um, behold him as the true and better temple. So we're going to see the restoration from corruption, the request for credentials, and the response to Christ. So let's all begin together in verse 13 with the restoration. John tells us, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, the previous verses tell us that he's in Capernaum, which is kind of, it's over by the Sea of Galilee, which is uh, uh, low in elevation. The temple in Jerusalem is high elevation, and and Jerusalem's like the main prominent city. So anytime you're going to Jerusalem, not only are you going up in elevation, but you're going up in prominence. So you'll see the biblical writers saying, and they went up to Jerusalem. And each year, Jews were required three different times for three different festivals to make this pilgrimage trek to, uh, to Jerusalem to, to worship and celebrate at the temple. The Passover is one of those um, pilgrim feasts. Now, during this time, during these holidays, the, the, the population size of Jerusalem would swell. Um, scholars estimate that the population of Jerusalem at this time was anywhere between 100 to 150,000 people. But during these holy days, it could swell up to around a million people. Just imagine everyone going. It's required by law. You have to come. This is the one place you got to go. So everybody's jamming into the city to observe and celebrate and hold the Passover feast. If you remember, the Passover is that time in Israel's history where they commemorate and remember the fact that God had delivered them out of slavery through a series of 10 plagues. And there's all these plagues. And on the final plague, Moses tells Pharaoh that the angel of death is coming to Egypt and is going to kill the firstborn son in every home in Egypt. And the only way of protection is to take the blood of an innocent lamb, slaughter it, take the blood, and then mark the door frames of your house. Every home that was marked was spared. And, every, and the angel would pass over that home. The angel would see this is a home that believes and trusts in God's word, and therefore it would pass over. But every home that was unmarked, every home that did not take shelter under the blood of the lamb experienced the reality of that plague. That night marked the birth of the Israel nation. It marked the emancipation from slavery. And so they were to remember that night each year. So Jesus is a faithful Jew. He's in Jerusalem to observe and celebrate the Passover. Now verse 14. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Okay, let's stop right there. Um, Because most of us probably aren't familiar with the temple. We hear that word and we don't really have an idea in our mind. So take a look at this rendition of the temple. This is um, Herod's temple. This has been the structure that Jesus would have seen and been at um, on, on this day. 
So just before the birth of Christ, King Herod had taken the modest temple plaza. He didn't think it was quite impressive enough. And he started this 18-year-long renovation process to build up the temple into something impressive. And that he did. It was over 10 stories high. It measured 144,000 square meters. That's over 1.5 million square feet. It's the equivalent of 30 football fields. His renovation project took this modest temple and it made it the largest sacred site in all of the Roman Empire. It was impressive. Jesus would have entered through the temple complex at one of the the various gates around the side. And now you see this green area. This is like the foyer, okay? In here, you're allowed to talk. You're allowed to converse. You're allowed to to catch up. Uh, You know, you got people that you only see a few times a year. That area right there where the green is, is, is a place of community and gathering. But as you go in further, as you make your way towards the center where you have the temple complex, now this purplish blue shaded area, now you've entered into what's called the court of the Gentiles. At this point, when you cross in here, you're supposed to take a different posture altogether. This is a place to begin preparing your heart with somber reflection and prayer. Now, anyone could come in here, male or female, Jew or Gentile, foreigner or national, it didn't matter. This was a place welcome to anybody who wanted to worship and pray to the Lord, to get close to the presence of God. And it was in this court right here where you see uh, this court of the Gentiles. Jesus sees merchants have set up tables. They're selling sacrificial animals such as oxen, sheep, and pigeons. Now think about it. If you're traveling from a long distance and you're coming to bring a sacrifice You don't want to travel with that animal. All along the way, it's going to get dirty. It could break a leg. It could get injured. Um, And if that happens, that animal is no longer able to be sacrificed. Your animal had to be spotless and pure. and, And the priest would look over your animal to make sure that it was qualified for the sacrifice. So it was a convenience. It was really nice to be able to just travel uh, without as much luggage, get to Jerusalem, and then buy your animal for the sacrifice there. Had to be spotless. And so you have a better chance of doing that if you buy it in Jerusalem versus traveling with it. And the money changers are there because each year you had to pay your temple tax. This is what allowed the Levites to kind of thrive and live because they, their whole job was taken up in service to the temple. And you had to pay in a certain currency. So imagine you go to another, cur- to another country, you need to use their currency, right? So whatever their local currency was, they had to get it exchanged here. And the money changers would charge a small fee, just like you would if you go to a, a foreign country. They, they charge a fee for that, that valuable service so that you can um, trade and commerce in that community. All of that makes sense to us. Now verse 15. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned the tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remembered it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Now, when we read this, we think, well, now that escalated really quickly, right? Jesus comes in, sees what's going on, and escalates the situation quickly. 
Now let me unpack this scene. You need to understand, first of all, Jesus isn't in here harming people, injuring people, nor is this a fury of, of, uh, of rage. This is not a, a divine temper tantrum. See, the Romans, uh, there was a Roman guard stationed at the temple. Had that happened, he would have been arrested for that. There's one thing the Roman soldiers are charged to do, and that's to keep peace and order. There can't be riots. So had Jesus, like had people started coming out bloody and there was a big riot, the Roman guards would have come in and arrested him much sooner in his life. We also know from the language that's used, this isn't a leather whip. He's not out there harming people. He didn't pull something out of his tunic. He, 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 it's a makeshift whip of cords. What he can, what he can find on, on, on the ground from uh, loose strings from animals or whatever, and he puts that together. Now, what he, what he has in his hand is enough to drive out the animals. It's enough to, to get people's attention, but he's not out there physically harming people. Now, at the same time, don't dumb it down. Don't, don't try to take away uh, kind of the scandal of the situation. He's not casually asking people to clear the area. It's not like Jesus is going, hey, um, this is supposed to be a place of prayer. You really should do this outside. It'd be great if you could leave. No, Jesus comes in with authority and says, get out. He is stirred. He's provoked with a righteous indignation, a holy anger, and he does intend to make a dramatic statement. Now, that is just shocking to us when we read it on the surface, because we just tend to think that anger is categorically wrong, right? Any expression of anger is inherently wrong. It's always wrong, but anger isn't categorically wrong. Sinful anger is always wrong because it's sin, but holy, righteous anger is not wrong. So let me give you an, a definition of anger so that we can have something to hold on to. Anger is an emotional response to a perceived wrong that demands justice. Anger is this emotional response, right? You can't take the emotion out of it. It's responding to, to, to a situation that, that you're, you're seeing is wrong and you know it needs justice. Something has to come in to settle this. Or another way to say it, anger is love in motion to protect what you love. Now think about that. You could think of some different examples on how you might have righteous anger. Like I'm called and required to protect my children. And if you come at them in a way that is going to be harmful, you're likely going to get some, uh, maybe at the beginning, some righteous anger. It'll probably turn sinful pretty quickly. But here's how you know. Righteous anger responds at the right time. It knows when to respond. It, it, it responds with the right proportion. It's just enough. It doesn't go over the top. And it responds for the right reasons. The motivation behind it is righteous. Whereas sinful anger responds at the wrong time with disproportionate responses motivated by the wrong reasons. So when you have a, an, 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 an anger response you can look at those three things and go, was it at the right time? Was it with the right proportion? And was it for the right reasons? And that's be, that begins to be a, a form of framework for you to think about if it's righteous anger or sinful anger. Now, I'll just be a good pastor to you today and tell you most of the time you don't respond righteously. Neither do I. And you might think, oh, this, this is righteous indignation. 
It's usually not. If we drill below the surface, we'll see some improper motivations there. Maybe it was the wrong time. Maybe a disproportionate response. Because you and I just, in general, traffic in sinful anger, which is why we often think that any expression of anger is sinful. Our anger manifests itself at the wrong time. It's usually escalated and way out of proportion. And there's usually some kind of sinful motivation behind it. But the Bible tells us that Jesus lived a perfectly sinless life, which would include sinful anger, meaning he never expressed sinful anger. Now, there's lots of verses in the Bible. We could spend a whole morning just tracking through the sinlessness of Christ, and that would be a good exercise. But for the sake of today's sermon, let me give you just two texts. Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but who in every respect has been tempted as we are. So Jesus is tempted like we are, yet without sin. Jesus is tempted in every way. He would have been tempted to respond with unrighteous anger, but yet without sin. First Peter 2.22, speaking of Jesus, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Full stop, no sin. So using the Bible to help us understand the situation, we realize, okay, however Jesus responds here, it can't be sinful anger. It must be in that category of righteous anger. So what happens is Jesus, as he walks into his father's house, gets angry at the right time with the right proportion and for the right reasons. So that begs the question, what is provoking him? What's going on here? See, Jesus isn't opposed to the sale of sacrificial animals to travelers. Jesus would say that's a good thing. He's not opposed to currency exchange either to pay the temple tax. He's not even opposed to the merchants charging a reasonable fee for their service. He's all for economy. He's all for that. The problem is that they've turned his father's house of worship into the marketplace. Be like taking a, a church and making it an outpost for the, the, the stock exchange. Imagine the commotion of thousands of people in that court area haggling for the best price, right? This is, this is an Eastern culture. They're hagglers, man. We walk into a store, we just pay the ticket price, not these people. They walk in and go, oh, okay, how much for that sheep, right? And they're gonna haggle. I wish we did a little bit more of that. Right? But that's what they're in there. They're, they're talking shop. They're trying to figure out, can I get the best price on this deal? Okay, you're going to charge that for that. I'm going to go over here and see if this guy over here has a better deal. And then there's all the commotion of the people um, um, exchanging money. Imagine just the sounds and the smells. Remember, thousands and thousands of people have come for this event. And everyone needs to bring a sacrifice. Everyone needs to exchange their currency. And they're doing it inside this court of the Gentiles, which is supposed to be a place of prayer. D.A. Carson writes, instead of solemn dignity, the murmur of prayer, there's the bellowing of cattle and the bleeding of sheep. Instead of brokenness and contrition, holy adoration and prolonged petition, there's noisy commerce. So remember, all of this is taking place in this court of the Gentiles, which was supposed to be this place of worship and prayer where you prepare your heart to draw closer into the temple. See, when you lay down, when you bring an animal to the altar, you should be thinking in your mind, that should be me. I should be on this altar. But instead, this animal is taking my place. For my sin, I deserve to die. Because death is the punishment for sin. 
That's the whole point of a sacrifice. It's that the animal stands in your place. The animal takes your place and receives the punishment you deserve. So you should be confessing your sins. You should be confessing all of the ways you haven't loved God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You should be thinking about your interactions with your neighbors, how it's fallen short of love. You should be grateful that God has provided a sacrificial system so that you don't have to get on the altar. That's what you should be thinking as you approach the temple. Not which merchant has the best deal or exchange rate. And not only should you come with an examined heart, this was the one place the Gentiles could come to worship. For them, they can't go any further in. This is it for them. This is the place for them to come and worship God. This is the place for them to experience what it's like to have a close relationship with God. So to take the only place that foreigners and Gentiles were allowed to go and to turn it into this noisy, disrupted marketplace, at best is insensitive, and at worst, it's religious arrogance. See, they would never dream of setting up the tables on the inside of the court, or on the inside of the temple. They would never have dreamed to do that. But they take the one place that the Gentiles are supposed to go, they take it for granted, and they set up shop there. The prophet Isaiah said that the temple was to be a house of prayer for all peoples, Isaiah 56, verse 7, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. And so Jesus, in his holy zeal, he's one man, imagine, crowds, he's one man among thousands. He says, enough, enough. And as he does, people and animals head for the exit. Tables are flipped over, money's flying around, and Jesus brings restoration to the corruption. Now this scene should challenge our conception as Jesus with his like European locks, you know, meek and mild, soft-spoken, never wanting to stir the pot, the guy who's just, man, I'm here to go with the flow. He is the gentle lamb who gives his life to take away the sins of the world, but family, he is also the lion of Judah. C.S. Lewis in his Chronicles of Narnia series, there's a book that uh, you may not know called The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, excellent book. At the very end, Lucy and Edmund are walking in this grassy field and in the distance, they see a lamb. And as they approach, they find this lamb is cooking breakfast. Okay, it's Chronicles of Narnia. Animals do all kinds of crazy things. But they see this lamb cooking breakfast and the lamb says, hey, come, come sit with me, have something to eat. And as they do, they start talking with this lamb. Hey, maybe you know the way to get to the land of Aslan. We want to get there. And so the lamb starts explaining. And as he does, a marvelous thing happens. Look what C.S. Lewis writes. And as he spoke, this is the lamb, his snowy white flushed into a tawny gold and his size changed. And he was Aslan himself, towering above them and scattering light from his mane. What is Lewis doing there? He's painting that beautiful picture, that truth of the gospel, that Jesus is both the lamb who is the lion and the lion who is the lamb. Like a lamb, Jesus is gentle and meek, but like a lion, he is regal and ferocious. As the lamb, he comforts us, he takes away our sin, but as the lion, he will disrupt us and call us 
into action. Pastor Tim Keller writes, if Jesus Christ comes into your life, he will, on the one hand, sometimes fill your table with a feast, and at other times, he will turn your table over and spill everything onto the ground. If he has the ability to fill your table, he has to have the right to overturn it. How can he be the Lord of the wine if he's not also Lord of the whips? See, the temple had become corrupt and noisy, and Jesus restores order through judgment. He was willing to look and say, this is sin. It's wrong. You are not supposed to do this here. And he was also willing to do something about it. So here's the takeaway for us on this point. Jesus has the right and the authority to come into our lives and to point out sin and turn over tables. See, the real Jesus is both Lord of the wine and Lord of the whips. He can't be one or the other. He's both. See, if he were only Lord of the wine, the giving and the blessing and the feasting God, then he'd never get rid of the chaos and the sin and the clutter that's in our lives so that we can enjoy the feast. But if he were only Lord of the whips, that ordering, cleansing, table-clearing God, he'd be too harsh, and we'd never experience the joy and the blessing of life. The real Jesus is both. So let me ask you, I had to ask myself this question. Do you pit one of those against the other? Do you prefer one or the other? Do you go, no, I, I like Jesus as Lord of the wine. I want him to fill my table with rich food and well-aged wine. Do you prefer one over the other? Have you given Jesus the authority to do his name to flip over tables in your life? Or is your Jesus more like a genie in the bottle where really you're the master and you call upon him when you need something to him so that he can come and grant your wishes? That's not the God of the Bible. You don't order him around. The real Jesus will at times put a feast on your table and at some times he will flip it over. And it's his good pleasure and discretion to know when you need which one. See, to bring restoration and remove corruption, he has to do some demo work. So this is Jesus doing that demo work and it gets messy. People are displaced. Results are worth it. Now look with me at verse 18 as we see this request for credentials. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Now, what happens next is exactly what you would expect, right? The authorities show up and they wanna go, what's going on? They start asking questions. This is like the building inspector showing up during a renovation process and saying, hey, do you have a permit for all this work, right? They wanna see some credentials, some kind of authenticating sign to justify this display of authority. You have to remember at this point in the narrative, this is still very early in the life of Christ, in, in his ministry. He's relatively unknown at this point. He hasn't come up on the radar of the authorities. But now he's on their radar. He's just brought disruption to the status quo and they want answers. Now what's interesting is that they don't appear to have uh, 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 spent some time in thoughtful reflection, considering if maybe 
he was right to do that. Like if they had violated some kind of, of law, if they had maybe gone too far with convenience, no one's sitting around thinking like maybe we were wrong, right? They just get defensive and they come to him and go, what are you doing? Give us a sign that would legitimize what you're doing here. They come looking for answers. Now you can imagine among the leadership, there's probably some who go, hey, that was kind of impressive. Who, who are you? All the way over to the other side of like, who do you think you are? You can't walk in here like you own the place. You have no right, no business to tell us what to do. Either way, they want to see some credentials. Verse 19, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Now, if the leadership had had eyes, if they had eyes to see and were really looking, if they were willing to maybe spend a moment in reflective prayer, they would have known they've actually already witnessed the sign. See, they're asking for a sign, but it just happened and they saw it. The clearing of the temple was the sign. But see, they're too busy looking at the sign or looking at themselves that they miss the one the sign points to. Remember, signs aren't the point. They point to the one who is the point. If you look too long at the sign, you can miss what it's pointing to. Remember, in John's gospel, we're going to see multiple signs unfold. In fact, seven of them. We saw one last week with the uh, water turning into wine. John is going to show us these signs as these public displays of Jesus where uh, uh, something about his glory and character shines so that we realize he's the one that we're supposed to put our faith and hope in so that we can live. Now look again at the temple complex. I know on the screen it doesn't look that impressive, right? But it is massive. And the court of the Gentiles, that, that shaded area, is still huge. It was filled with thousands of people, animals and merchants. And one man among thousands drives them all out. I can't even get like, my, my whole family to, to, to get their attention to me sometimes. And that's just six people, right? Jesus has this authority about him to clear out thousands of people. And friends, it's not the whip. It was his authority. It was the way that he carried himself. In that moment, the lamb transformed into a lion. And when the lion roars, you move, right? Now, the leadership has demanded another sign. But friends, Jesus is the lion and he will not be tamed. You can't domesticate him. He doesn't um, uh, jump when you say jump. He doesn't perform tricks at our commands. The Lion of Judah, Jesus Christ, our Savior and our God, will not be domesticated. They should have seen that in his display of power and authority. But there's something about this man and his desire for restoration that they should have seen. They should have seen that there's something about his passion and his zeal for the Lord that was genuine. They should have seen in him something to be emulated and modeled and desired, but yet they want another display of his power and glory. And so he tells them, I'll give you one. Destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. Now look at verse 20. The Jews said, uh, Jesus, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're gonna raise it up in three days? John tells us, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. Now it's clear from their response, they miss the, 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 the thing that Jesus is getting at. He's not actually telling them to shut it down and destroy it or that he could actually build it up in three days. See, they think Jesus is talking about the massive temple complex, 
So they say three days, three days? Jesus, that took five decades to build. Thousands upon thousands of laborers and you, one man in three days, are gonna build it up? That's impossible. So John gives us this editorial comment that Jesus was actually speaking about the temple of his body. So here's what's going on. Jesus basically says, listen, if you miss the sign that I just did, the next one you'll get is one of my death and resurrection. I'll give you another sign, but it's gonna be the same sign that I give everybody. It's the ultimate sign that authenticates that I am who I said I am and that you should believe in me. It was the sign for them, and friends, it's still the sign for us today. If you're looking, how do I know that Jesus is the one that I'm supposed to put all of my faith, hope, and trust in? Jesus and John would both say, look to the resurrection. So let's look at the last few verses to see the response to Christ. Verse 22, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So again, remember, Jesus said, my temple, of, the temple of my body will be destroyed and I'll raise it up in three days. The, res- the death and resurrection of Christ is that ultimate sign. So Jesus said, destroy my body in three days, I'll raise it up. And this next verse tells us that after the resurrection of Jesus, after he did that final ultimate sign, the disciples remembered. They started to connect the dots. They said, oh, we remember when you said that, Jesus. They're like, we didn't really understand what you meant by that either. But then when we saw you raised, we knew that you were talking about the temple of your body they started to, to put the, 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 the dots together. See, Jesus is going to predict his death and resurrection over and over throughout the Gospels, that he'll be crucified, killed, and buried, and on the third day that he'll rise from the dead. And when that happens, when the disciples see him, all of the signs of Jesus start to make sense. At the time, their, 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 their faith is, is, is progressing and it's, it's, it's deepening and it's, and it's getting more and more mature, but it's after they see the resurrected Jesus that all of those things come together, that the sign of the resurrection becomes the authenticating sign for them. And when they saw it, their faith deepened and matured and the course of history changed forever. Now you might be thinking, well, Clint, that's great that the disciples got to see the resurrected Jesus. Of course, once they saw that, all of the signs came together, but we can't see that sign today. It it happened or it didn't 2,000 years ago, but it's not like we have a DeLorean with a flux capacitor and 1.21 gigawatts to go back, to be there that weekend, to see Jesus hanging on the cross, to see him walk out of the tomb. And of course, that's impossible. But what is possible is to give the resurrection of Jesus an honest look. We can do that today. See, no matter what you believe about the resurrection, everybody, whether it's true or false, something incredible happened more than 2,000 years ago. Either the biggest movement in history maliciously spread like wildfire on a fabricated lie that people knowingly died for, or the God of the universe really did come down, enter into humanity to take our place, die, and was risen from the dead. Both of those sound kind of ludicrous. Both of them sound uh, kind of uh, 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 fabricated, but 
only one of them is true. See, the course of history hinges on what happened on a Roman cross 2,000 years ago. And every one of us at some point in our life is going to have to make a decision about what we believe about the resurrection. It either happened or it didn't. It can't, it can't be both. You would agree with me there, right? It's only one or the other. Now, there's a historian named um, Tom Holland. He's a British scholar and for years uh, has dismissed Christianity. But ironically enough, he's made his main area of focus that time period in first century uh, Jerusalem. In recent days, uh, he's been rethinking Christianity because of how impactful it's been in shaping the world for good. And despite being attracted to aspects of Christianity, he's yet to kind of cross over that line of faith and truly believe. And in an interview, uh, the, the interviewer would ask him about his faith in Christianity, and here's what he said. He said, I find the notion of an all-powerful deity like the God of Israel suffering the death of a slave, the most moving idea the human conscience has ever come up with. And that as an idea seems to me so profound that I am able at certain times like Easter or when I listen to music or visit an ancient church, there are times when I feel like it's true. When I feel fluttered at the sense of joy of it. And perhaps there's still a faint guttering flame of faith that is there to be tended and may become a more fuller flame in due course. Now, when I read that, I'm just heartbroken that he would have these, these embers of flame and, and get to the point where he's like, man, I'm, I'm so moved by that idea. It, it sounds amazing. And then just leave those embers alone. Listen, don't settle for perhaps. Don't settle for maybe one day I'll tend to the embers of faith and see if I can get those to fan into flame. Don't settle for mere intellectual curiosity. Something happened 2,000 years ago that changed history. And on this side of history, the advantage we have is that there is no shortage of excellent and approachable books that you can read to begin considering the resurrection of Jesus. Here's our reading rainbow moment for the day. I loved that show growing up. First one is this, Surprised by Hope, a British uh, scholar named N.T. Wright. It's one of the most accessible uh, treatments. He's got a massive tome that's about this thick. And uh, the publishers came and said, hey, no one's going to read that. Uh, like there's like four or five nerds in the world who will read that. Um, we need something that, uh, that's more approachable. So he's like, okay. And so he wrote it, and it's a little bit smaller, but, but he spent his whole life researching um, first uh, century Jerusalem and what happened uh, and why um, some of the claims against the resurrection hold no weight historically. Highly commend you, N.T. Wright, and Surprised by Hope. Next is this one here, Raised. It's by Jonathan Dotson and Brad Watson. Subtitle is Finding Jesus by Doubting the Resurrection. An excellent book. If you go, man, I'm kind of a doubter, this would be the one for you. And number three, we've got this one back at the back. You can take a copy today. It's called Who is Jesus by Greg Gilbert. One of the last chapters in here is a consideration of the resurrection. Is it fact? Is it myth? Did it really happen or not? The point is, 
um, you can engage with these ideas in a way that is not burying your head in the sand, but is taking a real and honest look at what happened uh, 2,000 years ago. We're, as a human species, we're really good at history. So we're looking at a claim of history, and we can make a very good, reasonable, valid conclusion that it did, in fact, happen. Don't settle for intellectual curiosity. Jesus says, look to the resurrection. That's the sign that points to me. Also, don't be intellectually dishonest either. If you've never seriously considered the claims of Christ, if you haven't even read the gospels themselves, if you haven't seriously looked into it, than to dismiss it, to, to dismiss it without an honest investigation, to make bold assertions that it's not true based on other people's claims. Well, that's the definition of intellectual dishonesty. This requires us to look at it. Jesus deserves more than our intellectual curiosity and dishonesty, and quite frankly, so do you. Like you are worth more than that. You deserve to see if this really happened or not. Verse 23. When Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. The Jewish leadership in general, they missed the sign and therefore they missed Jesus. John's gospel, the other gospels will show that over the course of his public ministry, animosity starts to grow into intimacy and eventually they seek to kill him. They reject him, and eventually they're going to seek to have Jesus killed. Suffice to say, they miss the sign of Christ. Now, John tells us that during this Passover feast, which was a week-long affair, Jesus did do many other signs in Jerusalem, and many other people believed in his name. See, it's not that Jesus doesn't want to perform signs and to give people the opportunity to believe in him, but he doesn't do it on demand. He doesn't perform signs for those who've already made up their minds not to believe in him, who, are, who aren't interested in perhaps doubting their doubts and suspending their disbelief to give him an honest look. But for those who are willing to see, for those who are willing to, to engage, he does perform these other signs. Now look at our last two verses, 24 and 25. Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. John ends by saying Jesus didn't entrust himself to those who believed after seeing the signs. So what's going on here? John says that just because people give early evidence of belief, just because they see something spectacular and, and quickly go, hey, I believe, that that initial trust doesn't mean that Jesus was willing to entrust himself to them because Jesus has the ability to see what was in man. What John is saying is that some people saw the signs, even made public expressions of faith, but Jesus in that moment could see the true nature of their faith. He could see if it was authentic and genuine. He could see if it, wasn't, uh, if it was superficial or not. And therefore, Jesus did not entrust himself to this group of people the way that he trusted, entrusted himself to his other disciples. Now, John isn't merely saying Jesus was really good at reading people. You know, those people who can just kind of talk with you and, and, and see in, in, into who you are. He's not saying that. He's not saying that Jesus was really intuitive. 
He's saying Jesus could see right into their souls. See, John is filling out more of that prologue that we talked about a few weeks ago about how Jesus is fully God and fully man. And as fully God, he possesses all of the divine attributes. And here we see Jesus with this divine ability to see and to know into our hearts. He knows what's in man. And he can tell if our faith is genuine and authentic. He knows the motivations of our hearts and he knows who truly believe in him. So if we consider all of those responses to Christ, the response of the disciples is the one that we should emulate, where we take an honest look at the resurrection, that we doubt our doubts, that we engage in the material, and we look to see, did he really rise from the dead? Not get caught up in some initial signs or maybe some initial flutters of faith, but to fan those things into flame to put our faith and hope in him. Now, this passage ends on a sober note. It it should cause us to ask, is my faith genuine? Because just saying it out loud or, or, or making a donation in the giving box, none of those things are authentic or genuine if they're not soul level, deep expressions of faith. So we have to ask, am I pursuing the real Jesus? the one who is both Lord of the wine and Lord of the whips. See, on that day, Jesus was filled with passion and zeal for his father's house. And John says that when the disciples saw Jesus in action, it brought to mind to them Psalm 69, verse nine, zeal for your father's house will consume me. See, on that day, Jesus was filled with zeal for his father's house. He was consumed by passion, but on the day of his death, the passion of Christ literally consumed him. His zeal for true worshipers, his zeal to have our corruption restored, led him to the cross to be consumed so that he would be the lamb who was slain for our sins in our place. And in Christ, we have a better lamb, the one who gives his life for you and me. And when Jesus cleared the temple, he was making a bold statement. Remember, the temple is where believers would meet with God, where they would be accepted by God because of a bloody sacrifice. And now in Christ, that old temple is gone and it's been replaced by a better temple because in Christ, we now have access to the presence of God anywhere. And so we have to ask, Sevamal, have you put your faith in a fabricated Jesus of your own design? of your own preference, or have you put your faith in the real Jesus, the lamb who was slain, who both fills and flips our tables? The call to action today is to believe in the real Jesus, the better temple who gives us access to the Lord.